1: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
2: When Diplomacy Fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome, to, Hello when and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One, The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fells' remastered look at the Russo-Japanese War, which originally aired as one episode on the 1st of June, 2012. You're very welcome back to the episode. Last time we set the scene for this remastered war. We coloured in some new details like the German element and the difficult state of affairs in Russia, even before the war broke out as well as giving you the classic details for the war, like the burgeoning power of Japan, the concerns of Britain, and the apparently widespread nature of imperialism in Asia. Here we follow these strands into their logical destination, as I take you to mid-1903. If you believe the doctors, nothing is wholesome. If you believe the theologians, nothing is innocent. If you believe the military, nothing is safe. Lord Salisbury Over July to October 1903, Japan and Russia entered negotiations on the future of Manchuria and Korea. Japanese hopes were high. They focused their energies on persuading Russian dignitaries of the importance of Korea to Japan. The Russian Tsar was unenthusiastic when it came to Japanese diplomacy, though. He was clinging desperately to his old power base and needed something to increase his popularity with his subjects. Nicholas II procrastinated when it came to negotiating with Japan, and Japanese foreign dignitaries became irritated with the frequent snubs and delaying tactics. Japan's government did not believe it could force Russia out of Manchuria, so it put all of its energies in diplomacy and finding a solution peacefully. Nicholas hesitated, though. Was peace really the best option for Russia? The Tsar was assured by his foreign minister that he could take all the time that he wanted when it came to Japanese diplomacy. I mean, what was Japan going to do? Invade Manchuria? Roman Rosen, the Russian ambassador to Japan, said in 1903 after yet more negotiations broke down that all we need to prevent war is one flag and one sentry in Manchuria. Russian prestige will do the rest. That attitude is baffling nowadays, of course, especially from the mouth of Russian's ambassador to Japan. But the common belief at that time was that, when it came down to it, Russians and other European Caucasian nations were simply inherently better than Asian ones. It was racism at its best, and we've seen the Japanese espouse their own Asian brand of racism too. But in this case it made the Russians blind to the storm that was about to envelop their empire. When viewing Russia's naval strength, the Tsar and his staff were confident that Russia would easily win any naval battles that ensued. The Russian naval staff reported that Our plan of operations should be based around the assumption that the defeat of our navy is impossible. Big navies and large battleships were a European affair involving intense science and mathematics, the ambassador to Japan reasoned. What do the little yellow monkeys, as he put it when reference to the Japanese, know about any of that? As it turned out, the Japanese knew quite a lot. On the 13th of January 1904, Japanese plans for the negotiations were sent to the Russian Foreign Office. By the 4th of February, the Russians still hadn't replied. Japanese diplomats were tired of Russia's delaying an excuse for the lack of results. The Russians moved more troops across the Trans-Siberian Railway to reinforce Manchuria in the previous days, and the Japanese believed that Russia was moving against her. She severed ties with the Russian Empire on the 6th of February 1904, forcing out Russia's ambassador in the process. Russia, still even at this stage, was insistent that Japan would not dare declare war on the largest, strongest empire in the world. I can only imagine the Russian Tsar's expression when he learned of the Attack on Port Arthur two days later. Perhaps he thought it had been a mistake or a case of an officer getting overexcited. But the Japanese had seen the flag in Manchuria. They'd seen the Russians swagger around and lull themselves into a false sense of security, too. The Japanese had launched a preemptive strike against the largest land based empire in the world. We hereby declare war against Russia, and we command our army and navy to carry on hostilities against that empire with all their strength, and we also command all our competent authorities to make every effort in pursuance of their duties, and in accordance with their powers, to attain the national aim with all the means, within the limits of the law of nations. The Japanese High Command on the 8th of February 1904. The Japanese attack on the Russian fleet at Port Arthur. Was a reaction to events which had been allowed to spiral out of control by the Tsar. The Russian Navy, based at Port Arthur, began fighting back, but the preemptive strike had badly damaged to the Tsarvich and Retvitsan, the heaviest battleships in Russia's Far Eastern Theater, and the 6,600 ton cruiser Palada, the biggest cruiser Russia possessed in the Far East. So, in one swoop, the Japanese levelled the playing field, at least momentarily, in the East. The Russian Baltic Fleet, on the other side of Russia's massive empire, was being prepared to move out to sea though. It was definitely strong enough to defeat Japan's alternatives, so St Petersburg thought. The Japanese high command acted fast. After attacking Port Arthur, they landed troops at Incheon on the Korean peninsula and began consolidating their hold on Korea by moving steadily up the peninsula. By the 26th of April 1904, the Japanese had advanced to the border of Korea with Manchuria along the Yalo River. The Russians guarding the crossing had a 170 mile front to hold. There was only 21,000 troops that the Russians could field in the area though. In the Japanese case they had 42,000 and they could concentrate on one particular spot along the line. Russian generals were advised to delay the Japanese advance so that reinforcements, could arrive from the west and crush the Japanese with weight of numbers, but the Japanese used deception to disguise their true intentions from the Russians guarding the crossings. They also paid local scouts and guides handsomely, ensuring plenty of valuable intelligence reached the Japanese forces. The Japanese were acting like a modern army, utilising logistical plans developed during the previous war with China and ensuring local loyalty by ordering their soldiers to exercise restraint with Korean citizens and paying them to act as reconnaissance units. The Russians in comparison acted as though everything was fine and there was no army within 100 miles of them, let alone across the river that they were anemically guarding. Okay, so it's mind map time once again, folks. This battle centres on the Yellow River, which the Russians were guarding. Imagine you're standing with the Japanese army in the north of Korea, just at the Yellow River. Opposite you, across the river, are many Russian soldiers trying to gauge exactly where you plan on crossing. But the river isn't a simple straight running river, no that would be too simple. This part is important by the way. To your left, the river opens up at its mouth into the Yellow Sea. To your right, it runs further up the mainland across Manchuria. So don't worry about the right part of the river for the moment. Directly in front of you though, the river forks into two different directions. What you need to know is that the Russians are all concentrated on your left, for reasons I'll explain in a minute. Normally a river would just run straight across land, but because of the forking patterns of the river, Russian-controlled land has been split into two halves. You, being the wise Japanese commander that your friends all know and love, recognise the importance of the two halves of land. It makes it that much harder for the Russians to defend themselves, especially since they have moved all of their men onto the left half that the fork of the river bisects, abandoning the right half altogether. So does that make sense? Let me just briefly recap, otherwise you won't really understand the ensuing battle. To be brief, a river is in front of you. On the opposite side of the river, there's two land masses because the river's forks have split it that way. The Russian army is only on the landmass on the left and nothing's on the right. Okay, that was way simpler, I probably should have just said that instead. Anyway, here is why the Russians move all their troops onto the left landmass and abandon the right one. General Zasulich, commander of Russian forces in the region, was, to put it very bluntly, a bit of an idiot. A Japanese gunboat in the mouth of the river had fired on the Russian positions earlier that morning on the 28th of April, making General Zasulich believe that this was where the Japanese attack would be focused. No matter what unfolded after this event or what came before him, Zasulich kept his entire Russian force on his own right flank, in other words, the left side of the river to the Japanese, beside the mouth of the river and even further down as well, concentrated on the town of Antung. Zasulich firmly believed the Japanese would cross at the point where they had fired on his troops. The Japanese had no intention of crossing directly in front of Zasulich's army, however, obviously, they had ten bridges with which they could use to cross the river, so they made a big show of using one directly in front of the Russians, establishing what Zaselich believed was their only way across in the process. If Zaselich had done his research though, he would have realised that the Japanese were using their other nine bridges to cross at other points along the river. While Zaselich focused his artillery on the single bridge in front of him, the Japanese made crossings further up the river on their right flank. Using some islands in the middle of the river, since it was a fairly wide river, the Japanese began crossing to the Russian's left flank where, if you remember, no soldiers resided. When Zaselich heard about this development, he remained convinced that it was just a diversion and that the main Japanese attack would come from where he had been expecting. The Japanese commander of the Army of the Yellow River, Major General Baron Tamimoto Kuroki, began to move large numbers of his troops over to the unoccupied landmass on the right side. From here, they were ordered to cross over the smaller fork in the river to the landmass on the left side. This they did quickly and in large numbers, while Zaselich was receiving reports of their movements, and his generals repeatedly told him that they would soon be encircled if they didn't move. Zaselich remained resolute in his decision to keep the Russians static, though, across the front, and the Japanese had by now moved an entire division, the 12th Guards, across to the landmass on the left, and this division outnumbered the Russians by a significant margin. While the Russians' left flank was under stress, the Japanese mounted their second attack, this time mounted across the islands of the centre of the river. Yet still Zasulich remained convinced that his forces should remain concentrated on his right flank, the Japanese gunboat was still visible to Zasilich in the Yellow Sea, firing every now and then to remind Zasilich of its existence. Zasilich himself showed zero ability to adapt to the situation. It wouldn't matter how big his right flank was pretty soon, because the Japanese were overrunning his centre and left. Then the 12th Guards Division, fighting the Russian left flank, brought up their own artillery. Remember those Krupp cannons used by the Germans in episode 1? Well, now the Japanese had them, except better versions of them, courtesy of German arms deals. The cannons ripped through the Russian left flank, enabling the Japanese to mount massive infantry charges against the battered and beleaguered Russians. As the Russian flank failed on the left, Zaselich was at this stage considering moving some of his troops from the centre to reinforce, while still holding on to the majority of his forces, including his reserves and Cossack cavalrymen on his right flank. The attack on the right flank would come, Zaselich assured himself, and it had to come soon because, hey, that boat was there and it keeps firing on us. Kuroki, for his part, did nothing to discourage Zaselich's belief that a Japanese attack would come against the Russian right flank. He even massed some troops in full view of Zaselich as he had them to spare. Zasulich really should have got it by now though, that if you see the Japanese clearly doing something, it's because they want you to. It's not like you've uncovered a huge Japanese secret. Zasulich was receiving grave news about his left flank. The Japanese had crossed from the islands on the river to actively attack the Russian centre itself as well. While this was happening, the Japanese had finally routed the Russian left flank, meaning that the troops attacking the left flank of the Russians were now free to attack Zasulich's centre and... To make matters even worse for the Russians, they were also being attacked from the rear. Kuroki was becoming perhaps a little bit overconfident though, because he ordered a mass attack on the Russian center. The Russian's center was better reinforced than the Russian's own left flank had been, and it initially seemed as though the Russian center would hold. Then the Russian cannons, of which there were few as they were concentrated in the right flank, wouldn't you know it, were knocked out by their Japanese counterparts, and with this the Russian center began to flee up the hills. To the defensive position that Zaselich had been advised to regroup on hours earlier. The Japanese were now crossing the river at every area except for the right flank that Zaselich was so favouring. Eventually at 4pm that day Zaselich ordered his men on the Russian right flank to move and attack the Japanese surrounding the other Russians in their defensive positions. However, as he moved up to attack the Japanese further inland, Kuroki struck. Finally, the Japanese were moving across the left side of the river, and now they began attacking the right flank of the Russians. Zastelich would probably have said, I told you so, as look at this, the thing I expected had actually come to pass. But his army was facing the wrong way to meet the Japanese, since Kuroki had been waiting for them to move all this time and now that they were facing the wrong way, they were ill-equipped to face the Japanese coming from the south. Now moving inland to relieve his surrounded army, Zaselich ordered the unfortunate 12th Siberian Rifles Division to hold the Japanese advancing from the south while he broke through the Japanese encirclement to the north and relieved his troops. Are you still with me? I know it's a tad confusing, guys, but just picture this if it helps. You are Zaselich, north of you is a large Japanese army surrounding your remaining forces, which are dug in defensively in their fallback positions. You have to get to them and relieve them, but to your south is another Japanese army. So you split your forces, leave the Siberians here, and you move to save your army in the north. By now, though, the Battle of the Yellow River, as it was known, was a lost cause. The army up north broke out of the Japanese encirclement and didn't stop marching until they reached safety in Inner Manchuria. Zasilich, upon hearing this, should have ordered all his men to pull out, but he left the 12th Siberian Rifles there to cover the escape, which he made to the east, linking up with the remainder of his army later that day. Kuroki had been reluctant to pursue the Russians as hastily as he had attacked them, because he believed they were marching him into a trap. He didn't believe that the main Russian army in the east had been beaten so easily, but they had. Zaselich, in the course of this battle, had blundered through every sound idea of strategy costing the Russians needless losses, not to mention abandoning the 12th Siberian Rifles Division to their fate. The Japanese eventually forced the surrender of the Siberian Division, but only after they had been reduced significantly in numbers. Upon hearing the loss at this battle, the Tsar was horrified. Russian prestige had not done the rest, as the Russian Foreign Minister had believed. Rather, Russian prestige had been completely shattered. For the first time in the modern era, A Western European power had been beaten soundly by an Asian power. No longer was it safe to simply assume that the European soldiers were inherently better than the Asian soldiers. When they used the same equipment as they had here, Japanese soldiers had beaten a Russian army, and fairly handily as well.
1: There's never been a
2: faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: So it was that at 5.30pm on the 1st of May 1904, a new age dawned. Japan had just taken its first steps onto the world stage, not as a localised Asian power, but as a world power. The ensuing months were a nightmare for Russia, as the war became less and less popular at home. The Russian army was defeated on the battlefield at Mukden and Sedepu before that. Port Arthur was placed under a tight siege in May 1904, the turning point in the siege coming when the Japanese occupied the high ground above Port Arthur and, after placing numerous artillery pieces there, began shelling the port with impunity. The damage was catastrophic. And the new Russian commander in the area surrendered Port Arthur to the Japanese on the 2nd of January 1905. The circumstances in the east had earlier forced the Russian naval staff to act. Remember, they had sent out their Baltic fleet, except by September 1904 it had been sent express orders to relieve Port Arthur, which at that stage was still under siege. The Russian Baltic fleet was meant to move quickly and discreetly, but Russian paranoia concerning Japan meant that they fired on numerous neutral vessels along the way, almost accidentally provoking wars with both Britain and Sweden. Adding to the confusion, the now renamed Russian Second Fleet discovered the demoralising news that Port Arthur had fallen to the Japanese while they were still only at Madagascar in January 1905, so changing their plans but not their directions, they now moved to reinforce Vladivostok. However, in a policy that was symptomatic of the Russian behaviour in this war, they took the most dangerous route in order to get there. They travelled through the sea between Japan and Korea, known as the Toshima Straits. This was home territory for the Japanese, and they knew it like the backs of their hands. They also had scouting boats in the area, so it was surely inevitable that the Russian fleet would be spotted. The Russians almost made it, though, and they only gave their position away because a hospital ship in the fleet was spotted with its lights on, as was international law. The Japanese made no compensation for the Russians' respect of international law, however. The word went out to the Japanese exactly the position of where the Russians were. The Japanese information was so good that they were able to position their ships in the choke point of the Toshima Straits, effectively crossing the T by placing their ships horizontally to meet the beleaguered Russians. The Russian fleet was moving in single file, incredibly enough, with one ship behind the other, meaning that at the most, one Russian ship could fire at the horizontal wall of Japanese shellfire. The Japanese, in this case, had four battleships and eight armoured cruisers, to the Russians seven battleships and nine armoured cruisers. The Russian ship's guns had been painted yellow, making them easier to see in the misty conditions, while the Japanese guns were painted a slate grey. In other words, nothing stood out from the mist for the Russians, but their own force was like a tightly packed, luminous snake, minus the fangs, and the Japanese had every advantage. Once again, the Russians' prestige didn't do much good against such difficulties. They lost five of their seven battleships and six of their nine cruisers. The Japanese suffered a damaged torpedo boat and 110 men killed. In his book, 50 Battles That Changed the World, Author William Weir called it one of the most lopsided naval battles in history. When news of this disaster arrived, the Tsar had to sue for peace. The Treaty of Portsmouth, mediated by Theodore Roosevelt, was signed by both sides on the 5th of September 1905, cementing Japan as a world power. Russia rescinded its claim to Manchuria, which gave Japan a free hand in Asia, The Tsar then looked inward as he attempted to assess the damage to his reputation both at home and abroad, and revolts exploded across the empire as the people of the Russian Tsardom demanded reform and an end to the feudal absolutism which they felt held their society back. Meanwhile Japan grew in confidence and ambition, viewing China as their nearest and by default next enemy while America watched the events unfolding and would surely have wondered at the consequences of an aggressive Japan exerting their imperium over Eastern Asia, expanding and empowering themselves in the process. The consequences of such an outcome would not be felt for another generation in America, but when such consequences came home to roost, a terrible, all-encompassing war across the entire Pacific between the Americans and the Japanese would be the result. <laughs> Long reaching consequences aside, the immediate results of the war were more obvious. Russia had lost two of its three major fleets. Russia had been totally defeated by a previously unknown and unconsidered country, at least in its own government. Russia was now both militarily and domestically in trouble. What nobody knew at the time was the long term results of the war. Aside from the fact that eventually American and Japanese rivalries would explode in the Pacific, the war had a massive impact in Europe as well. During the war, Japan had cooperated with intelligence gathering alongside Britain. Britain, through this process, had uncovered German involvement within the Russian plans, which hinted at potential German involvement should Russia request it. This pushed Britain even further away from an alliance with Germany, as did the now very clear imbalance in power which now existed in Europe. Britain was perhaps happier than Japan itself with the victory against Russia. As Dr. Philip Towell explains, There was absolute euphoria at the Japanese victories. Europe had been momentarily distracted by the Russo-Japanese War, but it now refocused on the affairs of the continent. Lessons had been learned, or at least they should have been. Countries all over the world had sent observers to report on the war in areas including the uses of technology, tactics, deception and intelligence. The Battle of the Yellow River saw the use of trenches on a large scale for the first time. As if eerily taking notes, trenches were singled out by many observers as a highly effective defence strategy, perhaps even worth replicating for future benefits. The diplomatic moves and appeals which had drawn France to Russia's side now left France severely exposed. The Russians had been devastated. France was now practically alone against the central powers, but Great Britain, once viewed as a potential enemy, was now being courted by France in diplomatic circles. You see, this was made possible because Britain's mood had changed when it came to Germany. At the same time as Germany was committing a series of diplomatic faux pas on the world stage, there was also the impression within Britain that the Germans were behaving more aggressively, in particular in the sphere of naval construction, where they were expanding their navy like never before, and they were making use of the chasm in power in Europe, which now existed between the Triple Alliance that had once been waning on the decline, and that of the Franco-Russian Entente. Faced with such a situation, Sir Edward Grey, from 1906 the Foreign Secretary of the Liberal Government, which came to power in that year, expanded upon the beliefs of a few conservative statesmen from the previous government, as well as the conciliatory moves which had been made by the British towards France during the 1904 Entente Cordiale. Germany, it seemed, was Britain's enemy now. So would Britain join France and what was left of Russia in an alliance for better or worse? Grey would lead British foreign policy for the next decade right up to the outbreak of the First World War, his outlook on foreign affairs was no doubt profoundly shaped by the Russian loss and the resulting increase in German power. At least, that's the simple, straightforward formula that Zach five years ago thought to be the truth. What I mean by that is, if you believe that it was an open and shut case from the end of the russo japanese War to the British openly siding with France and Russia to German naval bills irking the British to a Moroccan crisis handily thrown in for good measure then pull it back a bit. One of my favourite lines that an old professor of mine once told me was that, rather than events, dear boy, events, though Harold Macmillan never said that, it should be human beings, dear boy, human beings. In other words, Britain, France and Russia were by no means bound to band together after the Russo-Japanese War out of fear of Germany. Certainly the old enemies became closer from 1905 once Japan had defeated Russia, and Russia itself turned inwards, paralysed for a time by revolts. However, one of the most important events to occur, and an underrated one at that, was the accession of a few human beings to the helm of Britain's government in 1906. These were, as I said, the new liberal government, and boy did they have much to look forward to in the years to come. The government would in time lead Britain into the First World War, but it's important to remember the towering role which Sir Edward Grey, Foreign Secretary of that government, had in bringing Britain to that point. While I would caution against making the whole period sound like a series of stepping stones that led inexorably to war, it was hard to deny that German diplomacy, up to the point of the Algeciras Conference in spring 1906, which followed the first Moroccan crisis, had been anything but a disaster. Historian Jonathan Steinberg noted that, It is clear that between 1904 and 1906, Germany's diplomatic record was appalling. She alienated both belligerents, Russia and Japan, became involved in war scares with France and Great Britain, and forced on an unwilling world an international conference at which she found herself isolated. For all her hectic diplomacy, Germany earned nothing but suspicion. Adding to this unfavourable view was the opinion of Germany's foreign minister at the time, Baron Friedrich von Holstein, who noted in 1906 that, In the present atmosphere, it seems to me that the correct and dignified thing to do would be to act like Russia after the Crimean War and calmly withdraw into ourselves. However, on the other hand, the future chief of the German General Staff, Helmut von Moltke the Younger, noted in a somewhat less depreciating tone, All the other nations are pretty well united in reviling Germany and spreading the most terrible, stinking lies about us. They all assert that we are disturbing the peace, and nobody seems to see that all Germany wants is to be left in peace. For a state that wanted to be left in peace, Berlin seemed content to offend most people's sensibilities after the Russian defeat. Steinberg goes on to note, though, a certain amount of German isolation after the transformative war was probably inevitable in itself, considering the fact that Germany had expanded in power and influence so much over the previous decades. Steinberg also presented the interesting idea, which is certainly worth considering, that German diplomacy offended and unnerved the great powers both during this war and after it, not out of a sense of malice or from an interest in provoking another world war, but because the German governmental system was failing, and flailing internationally, as a result, what Steinberg meant by that was German diplomacy was flying by the seat of its pants, as were many systems within its government, and having been excluded from the system of alliances, so its statesmen felt, once the promise of the British agreement fell away, only to see Britain co opt Japan into an alliance, which Berlin felt that London had only just refused to it on the world stage. A level of German bitterness remained, and that was transformed into a barely veiled sense of relief and intrigue when the war between Japan and Russia first loomed, and then erupted. Questions over the neutrality of the Scandinavian states, of British intervention and of French action, were hot topics from 1903 up until the point of the war, as we saw, and Berlin's officials busied themselves with making the most out of their position, as outside both distinct camps. It was only fair that they should do so, since they had been forcibly excluded from both of those camps, and their own position was itself weakening thanks to the Austrian decay and a Franco-Italian concordat over colonial issues in the previous years. If Berlin felt isolated both before, during, and after the war, it continued to operate with this idea in mind even after the war changed everything, and its diplomats were neither skilled enough nor connected enough to communicate German policy properly nor to realise that much had changed before they started offending everyone, a la in Morocco, which had the effect of bringing about the exact thing that Berlin feared, an Anglo-French reproach immonde. As we know, Russia was dealing with its own internal problems following the war, and had little time by the twilight stages of it to realistically project its power into Europe, as it had done in the past. An attempt to prevent a pro-democracy demonstration in the Russian capital of St. Petersburg took an ugly turn when Russian soldiers began firing on the crowd, killing 200 people. News of the war failures, as well as the injustices and inequalities inherent within Russian society, had provoked the riot, which was replicated on a smaller form across the empire. Years of sacrifice to what seemed to be an inept Russian administration and a badly performing regime added to the anger and belief that change was badly needed. This event, which became known as Bloody Sunday, the first of many such days in the 20th century, occurred on the 22nd of January 1905. As the reluctant Tsar dragged his heels and refused to act, St. Petersburg felt forced to implement mild reforms to appease the rioters. A parliament was promised and greater individual rights granted. A stay of execution had been granted to the Russian Tsardom, but the Empire had been left truly shaken and its administrators deeply shocked. Dr. Stuart Lyon reminds the listener not to exaggerate in their minds the condition of the Japanese victory when he writes, At the end of the war, few among the army leadership had any illusions about the limited nature of Japan's victory. There were far too many dead and wounded and, as expected, no indemnity. The result was a growing fear amongst Japanese officers of social unrest, public disaffection, and of radical thought infiltrating army barracks. It would have been physically impossible for a small nation like Japan to extract the tribute it desired from a relative behemoth like Russia. But I would argue that, in this case... Japan's conditions of victory didn't necessarily matter. What mattered was the fact that it achieved victory in the first place, because of what the defeat meant for Russia. Japan was likely unaware of just how many chain reactions or dominoes it had set off or pushed over by defeating Russia, but the Japanese would have known that the world was changing. It was only 50 years before that an American ship, intending to open Japan up to Western trade and influence, had appeared in Japanese waters. Now those same American ships were upgrading and reacting to Japanese moves, and some were even looking nervously over their shoulders at what the Japanese were doing. It was a striking turnaround in ideology and technology, notwithstanding the incredible psychological impact which a victory over a Western power had on the Japanese Empire and people. Japan had arrived, and it had changed everything. For a critical period in Europe, because of the Japanese victory... Germany became the boogeyman which Russia had once been. To a British political scene, keeping a guarded eye over all that went on across the world, this apparent changing of the guard changed, in turn, their entire policy. It remained to be seen how the new foreign secretary, Sir Edward Grey, would act, but initial impressions already suggested that he was about to redefine what it meant not just to conduct British policy, but to be a British statesman. From our past work, We know the influence that Grey was about to have, but in the incredibly altered world that the Russo-Japanese War had just ushered in, it was impossible to know precisely how the next few years were destined to progress. And that, folks, has been the remastered episode, well, episodes, on the Russo-Japanese War. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know what you think through the usual channels. Did you miss the Russian accents as much as I missed using them? Well, probably not, and I don't blame you. I'm gonna go now. Thanks again so much for your support, guys. Please remember, be fit when you're thinking of ways to support this podcast. Visit the website, wdfpodcast.com, and you know the rest. Become a patron, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. You're doing it so well, and I really, really appreciate it. You guys are the best, and this is perhaps the best unwrapped present I've ever given anyone. So you're welcome, and... Thanks again for being such a great history friend. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Take care, and I will see you all soon.
1: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow
0: brings, UnitedHealthcare Tri-Term
1: Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.